Fragments of Fright, Volume 4, has been released. Four times the suspense, four times the danger, four times the terror. Go to maniacontheloose.com slash books or go to Amazon and search for Fragments of Fright. If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. (laughs) Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. Bedroom Window When I was in high school back in the 1970s, I lived in a two-story house in western Michigan. Back then, blacklights were a big thing. If you don't know what a blacklight is, it's a type of light that emits mostly ultraviolet light and gives off a violet glow. Under a blacklight, certain colors practically erupt with radiance. My room was covered in blacklight posters, which were made to glow magnificently when the blacklight was on. I didn't live too far from school and would always walk to and from. One day when I was on my way home from school, I looked up at my bedroom window and could clearly see the violet hue of the blacklight shining in my room. I could even see one of my blacklight posters all lit up. This was unusual because I never turned the blacklight on during the day, so obviously I didn't turn it on that morning. I'm an only child, so the only other people who could have turned it on were my mom and dad. My mom and dad didn't get home from work until well after I was home from school. My dad always left for work before I even woke up, so the only person who could have turned the light on was my mom. When she returned home from work, I asked her if she flipped that light on. She said no, mentioning that she hadn't even gone into my room that day. Back in those days, fast cars and sexy girls took up the majority of my mind, so even though it was strange, I didn't think too much about it. That is, until a week later. Now, any red-blooded 1970s high school boy knows that if you have a black light, you have to have a strobe light, too. And the next week, when I was walking home from school, I could see the rhythmic flashes of light coming from my bedroom window. My strobe light was on. I absolutely had not turned that thing on before I left for school, and again I confirmed with my mother that it wasn't her either. To say this seemed bizarre was an understatement. I told some of my friends about the experiences, One girl I knew named Tabitha suggested we have a seance in my room. She was big into the occult and supernatural things. I talked a couple of my buddies into taking part in it, and the four of us went up to my bedroom one day after school. The girl instructed us to sit in a circle and join hands. She then lit a small candle in the center of us. From there she closed her eyes and began chanting in some language that didn't make sense to me. When she finally stopped, she said nothing else for a long time. She just sat there with her eyes closed. We all listened to the silence. 
It was strange how noiseless it was. We couldn't hear any natural sounds coming from outside. We couldn't even hear ourselves breathing. It was eerie. Finally, she spoke. Show yourself to us. We know you are here. I demand that you show yourself to us now. Suddenly, the room became frigidly cold. I I swear I could see my own breath. And then, without warning, the candle in the middle of the circle blew out. It was only then that I could hear myself breathing and noticed ambient sound around us again. So strange. And the next day, as I walked home from school and approached my house, I peered up at my window and I froze. There was somebody standing in my bedroom window staring out at me. It was a girl. She was small and had long, dark hair. She appeared to be wearing a white gown. I'll never forget her face because it was featureless. I blinked and she was gone. That night I woke up at 2.30 in the morning to take a leak. I walked to the bathroom, did my thing, and started back for my bedroom. When I stepped up to my bedroom doorway, I halted in fear. There was a street light outside casting a subtle glow onto my bed. I could see the unmistakable shape of a person underneath the blankets which were wrapped tightly around them. I could clearly make out their torso and the shape of their head. It was at this point that I freaked out and ran downstairs. I slept on the couch that night, and the next day, I turned the downstairs guest bedroom into my new bedroom. My old upstairs bedroom was now the new guest bedroom. I never went up there again unless it was absolutely necessary. Even when I did, I made sure I wasn't alone. After that, every once in a while, on my way home from school, when I'd look up at that bedroom window, I'm not kidding when I say I would see a dark shadow-like figure moving around up there. I was relieved when we moved out of that house the following year. I'm a high school tomboy. Other girls obsess about makeup and fashion, but I honestly could not care less. I find makeup to be a waste of time, and fashion to me is a pair of blue jeans and an oversized t-shirt. Since I don't relate to most girls, I don't have many friends. Which is fine with me. Being a loner makes it easy for me to enjoy my passion, which is the outdoors. I love hiking down trails, fishing, and climbing trees. I live in a small neighborhood that borders a large, abundant forest. It's that forest where I have spent the majority of my young life. It's not uncommon for me to come home from school, go directly to the woods, and not come home until dark. Normally, that wasn't an issue for my parents. They knew the kind of person I was and supported my passions. 
Ultimately, they just wanted me to be happy, but recently they had forbidden me to go into the woods. This was due to recent terrifying happenings in our area. A few weeks ago, every chicken from one of our neighbor's chicken coop vanished without a trace. Two weeks back, a rancher down the road said that three of his cows disappeared. Again, no sign as to what happened to them. And then last week, our next-door neighbor's son went missing. His name was Ron. He was an outdoor enthusiast not unlike me. He liked to hunt. His parents said he went into the woods to do some squirrel hunting and was never seen again. The only thing they found was his gun. It had not been fired. I'll admit the disappearances were alarming, but I promised my parents I would just climb some nearby trees within view of the house if they let me go outside. But they declined. I huffed and puffed, went to my bedroom and locked the door. Minutes later, I opened my window and climbed outside. I couldn't be cooped up in the house. I needed some fresh air. Out of respect for my parents, I wouldn't go into the woods. I'd just take a walk down the road for a mile or so and come back. I walked down the road in the direction away from the neighborhood. The road winded its way through the forest, and in the direction I was going, there were no houses nearby. The only sounds I could hear were from the abundance of life within the forest. It was kind of like being in the forest without technically stepping a foot within. After a mile, I stopped and sat down on the section of road that passed over a small creek. There was a concrete drainage pipe that went under the road. I sat down and dangled my feet in front of the drainage pipe. I decided I wouldn't stay long. I felt a little guilty defying my parents and going out anyway. And I knew they'd worry if they went into my room and I wasn't there. I was just about to get up and head back home when I saw something amazing. It was a blue crawdad. Blue crawdads were incredibly rare in the region. I had never seen one before. I caught just a glimpse of it as it staggered over the dried creek bed and then disappeared out of sight into the drainage pipe. I had to see it better. I jumped down into the creek bed, bent down, and stared into the drainage pipe. I could see the blue crawdad moving along at a leisurely pace, but it was too dark within the pipe to see him well. My plan was just to let him walk through it, and I'd get to see him clearly once he exited out of the other side, but unfortunately he stopped right in the middle of the pipe and just sat there. I waited impatiently for several minutes, and then decided I could expedite the situation if I crawled in after it. The drainage pipe was on the small side, but I was a skinny girl. I was confident I could fit in there. I got on my hands and knees and squeezed myself into the cramped pipe. Once inside, I realized that it was much snugger than I expected. As my stomach dragged the floor of the pipe, my back was scraping against the top. I was skinning up my elbows as I slowly pushed myself forward, but the reward would be worth it. This was a rare creature that I would likely never get a chance to see again in this area. I was probably a yard away from the elusive blue crawdad, when it scurried at a blistering pace away from me and exited out of the other end of the drainage pipe. Damn! I hurried after it, moving as fast as I could, and then came to an abrupt stop. In my haste to catch the blue crawdad, I moved my arms and legs in a way that wedged me tightly inside the drainage pipe. I was stuck. 
Boy, was I stuck. My elbows were under my chest. My back was plastered against the cold, damp ceiling of the pipe. The more I moved around, the tighter I jammed myself inside the pipe. It got to the point that I couldn't move at all. I was clogged inside the drainage pipe. I was sandwiched in so tight that it was difficult for me to breathe. My lungs just didn't have the room to fully expand. I felt like I was being crushed. There was no way I was going to be able to get out of there without any help. And honestly, I had gotten myself lodged in there in such an immovable way, I wasn't confident that I could get free even with assistance. All I could do was scream, and scream I did. I screamed and shouted until I was hoarse, and my voice left me. I was trapped and nobody was coming to rescue me. It's possible they would never find me until my body decayed enough for a rush of water on a rainy day to push my remains through. I laid there defeated as I stared out of the hole at the other end of the drainage pipe. The sun had just begun to go down when I noticed something entering the drainage pipe in front of me. It was strange. It looked like a lumpy ball of grape jelly, but it was moving. It was inching along much like a slug, but it was moving fast, and it was moving toward me. Within seconds, it was inches from my face. It stopped as if observing me as much as I was observing it. I watched on as its slimy body expanded in and out as if it were breathing. Then it began to emit a slight guttural sound as if growling. The growling continued for a few seconds, and then it attacked. It launched its gelatinous body onto my face and expanded, covering my entire head. It was wet and gooey. It smelled like a combination of potting soil and cough syrup. I didn't notice any mouth-like features on the blobby creature, but it absolutely felt like it had needle-like teeth pressing down into my flesh. Minutes later, my entire body was enveloped by the mucus monster and I felt like I was on fire. The last thing I thought before my organs stopped functioning was that I had jammed myself into that drainage pipe to see a rare creature and got a lot more than I bargained for. Now I'd just be another missing person, but probably not the last. Most of my books are now available as audiobooks. Go to maniacontheloose.com slash audiobooks. The Painting as a single guy who recently moved into an apartment for the first time, I immediately noticed that my living room wall was depressingly bare. I didn't have anything in regards to artwork, nor did I have the money to purchase anything worthwhile. So I was on the lookout for a large, cheap picture or painting or tapestry. Anything to cover up that cold, white, naked wall. I headed down to a local discount store. I was pretty sure they had some poster-sized pictures for around 20 bucks that would probably do the trick. On my way to the store, I passed through the old downtown section of my area and noticed a couple of paintings in the window of a small antique store. 
I remember when I was a kid that my dad used to brag about some of the steals of deals he got at antique stores, so I figured I'd stop and give this little place a look. The paintings in the window were really nice scenic pictures. One was old and worn. It was a picture of a lone wolf looking down on a snowy village under the shield of night. The picture next to it was of a woman sitting on a bench in a flower garden reading a book. It was exploding with colors and would definitely brighten up my apartment. I entered the small antique store. There was a wide variety of primitive items strewn about with no rhyme or reason, but I didn't really pay any attention to anything else. My mind was on the two paintings in the window. I'd take whichever one was cheaper. I hurried to the storefront window. For a few minutes, I felt like a kid on Christmas morning anticipating a new present. Then I saw the price tag on the wolf painting. One hundred bucks. I slumped and crossed my fingers that the flower garden painting would be cheaper. And it was. By five dollars. Both were way out of my price range. I guess my disappointment was obvious because a voice called out to me about it. What has you so down, boy? I looked over at a scrawny old man behind the front counter. He had a crown of scraggly gray hair and was wearing a white button-up shirt with a black vest. Oh, I had my eye on those paintings in the window, but they're both out of my price range. The old man grinned. Come on over here, boy. I have something you might like. As I curiously walked toward the old man, he pulled a gigantic painting out from behind the counter. Wow! It was twice as big as the paintings in the window, and it was beautiful. It featured a huge lake surrounded by trees. There was a man in a fishing boat at the far end of the lake. Beyond him was the lake's edge, and behind that, a lush forest capped off by a huge mountain. I loved it. It's amazing, but there's no way I can afford it. It's better than the ones in the window. The old man stared at me for a moment, pondering something. How much can you afford? I shrugged. Twenty bucks? The old man grinned. Sold. I was shocked. Seriously? The old man nodded. It's yours. I quickly withdrew $20 from my wallet and set it on the counter. Don't get me wrong, I'm thrilled to have it. I'm just curious as to why you're selling it to me for so cheap. He stared at me for a long moment before explaining. It gives me the creeps. I looked closely at the painting. There was nothing creepy about it at all. Quite the contrary, it was a daytime painting of a man fishing on a beautiful lake. But hey, I wasn't about to argue with the guy. I was beaming as I picked up my prize and waltzed out of the store. That evening, I hung it up on my living room wall. It instantly transformed that cold, prison-like room into an area that was warm, vibrant, and alive. On a normal night, I would have crashed on my couch and mindlessly vegged out to the television set. But instead, I found myself staring at the painting. It felt more like a window than a painting. It was peaceful. It set my mind at ease. 
oh, to be the fisherman in that boat, enjoying a beautiful day, relaxing, catching that night's dinner fresh from the calming lake. I fell asleep looking at the painting. The next morning I woke up and the first thing I saw was the painting. But something was off about it. I couldn't quite place my finger on it at first, but then it dawned on me. Was the fisherman farther away? He was still in his boat, but the boat was smaller and closer to the back shore in the painting. Of course, that didn't make any sense. Maybe it was a trick of the lighting? It was a bright day out, and I had been staring at it during nighttime. I went to work that day, but wasn't very productive. My mind was elsewhere. It was on that painting. Why did it appear so different in the morning? I was anxious to get back home and look closer. When I arrived home, I hurried to the painting and studied it. At first, I thought it looked the same. The boat was smaller and more distant, much like it had been that morning, but it appeared as though it had shifted slightly toward the left of the painting. There was also something else that caught my eye. There was a figure standing on the lake shore at the back of the painting, just in front of the forest's edge. I couldn't make it out well, so I grabbed a magnifying glass and looked much closer. And sure enough, there was a dark silhouette of a person standing there as if they had just emerged from the forest and was watching the fishermen. This was subtle, so perhaps it had always been there and I never noticed it. Once again, I found myself sitting on the couch that night staring at the painting, studying every single detail. If it were to change again, I would be certain. The next morning, the change in the painting was not subtle. The figure that had previously been nothing more than a small, shadowy silhouette in the distance was now standing prominently on the edge of the shoreline and could be seen well. It was a man dressed in black, wearing a white, featureless mask. The figure was holding a hatchet and was staring out at the innocent fisherman in his boat who seemed to be oblivious to the masked man's appearance. What was going on? I drove to the antique store from which I had bought the painting, hoping to find some answers from the old man who sold it to me. But when I approached the store, I was greeted with a closed sign on the front door. The windows that had housed the paintings that drew me to the store were bare. I peered in through the store's window to discover that the entire store was empty. My imagination started to run wild. Perhaps the old man achieved his goal, ridding himself of that demented painting. Then he cut and run to assure himself of never having to see it again. Those thoughts were complete nonsense, of course. At least I hope that was the case. When I arrived back home and walked toward the picture, my mouth fell agape as I sucked in a shocked breath. The picture had transformed again in a horrifying way. The fisherman's boat sat empty in the middle of the lake. The masked man stood triumphantly at the edge of the shore, raising his hatchet in one hand and the bloody, decapitated head of the fisherman in the other. No. He killed him. The murderous bastard killed him. My instinct was to tear the painting off the wall and toss it in the dumpster out back, but 
I couldn't bring myself to do it. I found myself compelled to wait and see what happened next. The next morning I woke up to find that the masked man was gone from the painting along with any evidence of his carnage. It was back to a serene, beautiful image, albeit without the fisherman. It stayed that way for several days to the point where I began to question my sanity. Perhaps what I was now seeing had always been the painting. Maybe the shifting imagery had all been in my mind. Was I going crazy? Did I have some kind of a stroke? Those questions were answered for me the next day when the painting altered again. I arrived home from work and stopped in my tracks when I saw the deranged mask man within the painting once more. This time, he was closer. He had moved to the foreground of the painting. His back was to me as he looked out over the tranquil waters, no doubt waiting eagerly for another potential victim to show up. I felt helpless as I watched the painting night after night, hoping nobody else would arrive at the lake to be butchered by him. It was late at night just before I went to bed when I looked at the painting and felt a chill run down my spine. The masked man had turned around. He was now facing me. I couldn't see his eyes through the shadow cast by the prominence of the creepy white featureless mask, but I knew he was watching me. He could see me. He was watching me through the window of the painting just as I was watching him. I didn't sleep that night. I just stared back at the killer in the mask as he watched me. I occasionally dozed off and every time I opened my eyes, the masked killer was a step closer and closer and closer. Within a day, the painting was nothing more than a close-up of the masked man staring at me. The front of his mask was pressed up against the painting, watching me, not unlike the way he observed the fisherman before he slaughtered him. He could really see me, and he wanted to kill me. For several days, the painting remained the same eerie image of the masked man glaring at me, and then suddenly one morning, I woke up, and the masked man was gone. The painting was back to the lovely image of a quiet lake surrounded by a soothing lush forest. In the middle of the lake sat an empty boat, the haunting reminder of what should never have occurred in such a calm and peaceful world. This left me with a terrifying thought. Did the sinister masked man simply move to a section of the painting's world that I could not see? Or did he find a way into my world? As I pondered that question, I heard the loud creak of someone stepping up behind me. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want to support the show, buy some of my books. I have a bunch of them, and most of them are free with Kindle Unlimited. Don't have Kindle Unlimited? No problem. They're all priced pretty cheap. Go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. The end. 
of the rainbow. I left work early one rainy afternoon. I was sick. Not ill, but sick. Sick because I lost my entire paycheck over the weekend at the racetrack. It was common for me to go to the horse races on the weekends, but I had never bet more than half my paycheck before. No matter how bad I did, I still had enough money left over to eat until my next paycheck came in. And this time was different. I put every last penny of my paycheck on a trifecta bet. It was a risky bet. Some would even say stupid. But I had just enough alcohol in my system to make an atrocious decision. If the horses I chose came in first, second, and third place, I'd have enough money to quit my job, buy a yacht, and sail around the world. But they didn't finish in the order necessary, and I lost my paycheck. I usually go shopping right after I get my paycheck, but that week, I went to the racetrack first and lost it all before I could buy food. So all I had to eat for the next week were a few carrots, a couple packets of crackers, and a loaf of white bread, which I found out that morning was moldy. I wasn't sure what was louder, the constant growl coming from my empty stomach or the buckets of rain crashing against my windshield. The road I was traveling down was always heavily congested at 8 o'clock in the morning on my way to work. In the middle of the afternoon, it was barren. Experiencing the road at this time of the day was a rarity for most of us in the rat race. I was inching along at a snail's pace due to the significance of the storm, but I would probably be going this slow regardless due to my depressed state and the fact that there was nobody in my rearview mirror urging me to speed up. It's not like there was anything I was in a rush to do at home. I'd probably plop myself on the couch and watch some mindless television show while I nibbled on a cracker. I didn't think it was possible for the rain to pound down on my little car harder than it already was, but I stood corrected. For a few seconds, it sounded like somebody was banging on the roof with a mallet. Ahead in the distance, the monstrous storm clouds grew darker and were riddled with constant glimmers and occasional sparks of lightning. It looked like I was going to have to navigate through this storm the entire way home. And then, unbelievably, all at once the rain stopped, the storm clouds dissipated, and the sun made a cheerful appearance. In all my life, I had never experienced such a drastic change of weather out of nowhere, and perhaps that had something to do with the most brilliant rainbow I ever saw in my entire life. It looked like something out of a cartoon. It was as clear as anything else outside my car window. It didn't even have the appearance of light. It was more like a solid structure that was glowing. The colors of the rainbow were stunning. I had never seen red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet in such vivacious tones. As I slowed through a yield sign and made a left turn, I couldn't believe my eyes. I saw the end of the rainbow. It had come to a rest in the middle of a muddy field. It was touching the ground. Now, I knew this was impossible because rainbows are made in the sky. They never actually touch the ground. They can't because they're an optical illusion formed by light reflecting off of raindrops in the air. 
But there it was, the end of the rainbow, and there was something shiny sitting next to the end of the rainbow. I couldn't make out what it was. The reflection coming off of it was too intense, but I knew the old folk tale about there being a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Could it be true? Could that actually be a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? Uh, I knew it couldn't be, but I wasn't going to spend the rest of my life wondering what that dazzling object at the end of the rainbow was. I was going to find out. I screeched my car to a halt on the shoulder of the road and leapt out. I dashed across the street and into the soft, muddy field. I sank down into the mud well past my ankles. I lost both of my shoes to the giant, mushy sponge of mud, but that didn't deter me. I sloshed my way closer and closer to the end of the rainbow and the golden glow next to it. This was unbelievable. If this rainbow was nothing more than a trick of the light, it would keep moving as I got closer, but this rainbow was still there like a glorious, colorful flame in front of me. And I could hear it. It was buzzing like an electrical line, and I could feel it emitting warmth that comforted my chilled bones. The golden glow of the object next to the rainbow was as brilliant as ever. As I got closer, I was able to determine that the glorious rays of light were magnificent glares casting off of three square golden objects. Two of the objects were low to the ground, while the third was about four feet higher in the air. Was I looking at gold? A surge of adrenaline rushed through my body, allowing me to pick up my pace slightly. I was about five feet away when the glare dwindled enough for me to make out what the square gold objects were. They were buckles. The two near the ground were attached to shoes. The one higher up was fastened to a hat. The shoes and the hat were being worn by a leprechaun. An honest-to-goodness leprechaun. As the creature stepped forward, it was not what I was expecting. It was a little less than four feet tall, and it was wearing red, not green. I guess the fable of them wearing green came from its skin color. Its skin was jade and scaly, giving the leprechaun a reptilian appearance. It was a stocky, muscular creature with enormous clawed hands. Its sharp, blade-like teeth were revealed when it smiled at me. I was scared, but remembered the folktale that if you find a leprechaun at the end of the rainbow, it has to grant you three wishes, or something along those lines. Hey, I, I think you have to grant me three wishes now, right? The leprechaun let out a deep, bellowing laugh and then spoke with a demonic voice. That's only if you catch a leprechaun, Sonny. But you don't catch me. I catch you. With that, the leprechaun monster charged me and wrapped its catcher's mitt-like claw around my throat. It let out a cackle as it squeezed my throat until I blacked out. I woke up in some kind of dark, dingy underground cavern. I could smell the potent aroma of smoke in the air and could hear the crackling of burning embers. I found myself bound by rusted chains to a cold concrete slab. I was on my back staring up at the tree roots snaking their way around the ceiling of the cavern. I turned my head to the side upon hearing the clinking of metal. 
There was the grotesque leprechaun sitting on a small wooden chair next to a blazing bonfire. He was sifting his claws through a black pot full of gold coins. Hey, hey, that's my pot of gold, isn't it? I mean, don't I get that? Don't I get the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? I mean, there's got to be some truth to all this damn folklore. The leprechaun flashed a mischievous grin. Yes, this pot of gold is yours. If you want it. The leprechaun's evil smirk intensified as it held the pot of gold over the roaring fire. Within seconds, I could hear the clatter of coins being reduced to a bubbling, scalding liquid. I could smell the burning stench of hot alloy as the creature carried the blistering pot of melted gold to me and held it over my face. As you wish. The leprechaun began tilting the pot of boiling gold and I could see the sizzling, sweltering liquid inching closer to the edge of the pot, mere seconds from spilling over and melting my flesh, bones, and brains. No, 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 I, I, I don't want it. I don't want the pot of gold. With that, the leprechaun tilted the searing pot of gold back up and set it to the side out of harm's way. He then dug a large, round, rugged gold piece from his coat pocket and held it up. If I turn you loose, and you promise never to tell anyone about me and my gold, you can have this rare coin. Mr. Leprechaun, you have a deal. Turns out the gold coin the leprechaun gave me was worth approximately five million bucks, so I quit my job, bought a yacht, and sailed around the world. Here's a super fun way to support the show. Go to maniacontheloose.com slash store and buy some Maniac on the Loose merchandise. Let the world know you're a listener. T-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, hats, mugs, there's a bunch of items to choose from. And you have a multitude of design choices, including all of my book covers. Go take a look. It's super cool. Go on. Do it. Right now. Go. ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash store. The Hunger, The Deviant. Nine o'clock a.m., same time every day. I stop into the donut shop for a cup of coffee and a cheese danish. There are a lot of coffee joints in town that I could get my java and sugar fix at, but I always go to the same place. The coffee is pretty good, the Danish is fine, but I mainly come to gawk at the little girl who works behind the counter. Her ripe melons always seem a stitch away from bursting through her shirt. I was pretty sure she was a high schooler. A week ago, my attention was diverted from the hot young worker to a donut-loving woman. She must have been in her early thirties. Her tits didn't compare to the girl behind the counter, but they were ample enough and always form-fitting to her blouse. 
Her hair was wavy blonde, her eyes crystal blue, and those lips, those thick, luscious lips, boy, I bet she can do some fun things with those lips. What caught my eye were the tight leggings she wore. They couldn't conceal the perfectly muscled contour of her legs. This one worked out, and her ass, don't even get me started, perfectly rounded, a welcoming shimmy as she walked away, and never a panty line in sight. This gal was going commando, no doubt. She always ordered the same thing, four dozen mixed donuts. She'd have the little cutie behind the counter divvy out the variety for her. It got to the point where I couldn't get enough of her. I needed more, so I followed her. When going on a stalk, it's all about hanging back just enough to be discreet, but still being within distance to get an eyeful. The woman's nice, firm, dairy air wiggled with every step. It was like an invitation that had me wondering how many times a month she spread those legs. I was a little surprised when she stopped in a seedy corner store. It was a little small. If I followed her in, I might have been made, so I waited outside. It couldn't take her too long to get whatever she needed in that tiny store. That's what I thought, but she was in there a much longer time than I expected. I was about to go in and see what the delay was when that hot little lady finally exited the building. From there, the hard body walked to a mom-and-pop diner. She sat down at a window booth. The view was perfect, so I took shelter at the edge of an alleyway and watched. Unbeknownst to her, I could see under her table. Her legs were slightly parted, allowing me to see the subtle outline of her crotch. I couldn't help but let out a moan as I whispered to myself, Mmm, yeah. Is there hair, or is it bare? I was so hard, I was about to burst. I did a quick scan of the area. There were several people out and about on the street, but I was in the shadows. I didn't think they could see me, so I pleasured myself right there in the alley as that little whore downed her sausage breakfast. Normally, that would have been enough for me, but I wanted more. I wanted to touch her. I wanted to taste her. Oh, I was hungry for her, so I kept following. I was slightly surprised to see that her next stop was a homeless shelter. I spied through the window and watched as she opened three or four donut boxes for those dirty dregs to eat. She then took the last box of donuts into a back room. Homeless shelters are notoriously understaffed and sure as hell don't have much in the way of security. 
This was the perfect opportunity for me to find out what was underneath those clothes and slide myself inside of her. I strolled in through the entrance and nonchalantly walked past the filthy homeless people. None of them looked my way. They were fixated on their donuts. So I scurried down a hallway and found a back entrance to the room she was in. The woman was inside a cluttered kitchen area. Her back was to me. Her little rump was on full display and I couldn't help but lick my lips. She had the donut box open and was doing something to them, but I couldn't see what exactly, nor did I care. I quietly withdrew my knife that I always had on me. It was an intimidating hawk-beaked curve. With the blade up against her throat, she'd let me do anything I wanted to her, and I planned on doing everything. <laughs> I moved stealthily and didn't make a sound. She had no idea I was there. This was going to be so easy. That's when I heard a loud creak behind me. I spun around and gasped. The Hunger Hitman. I'm a professional hitman. I was prepping for a job. I won't go into detail about the contract, but I needed a clean gun and plenty of ammo. I bought my weapons on the black market, thus there was no record or ability to trace, and I never used the same weapon twice. I'd buy it, use it, and then introduce it to the river. The man I bought all my tools of the trade from was called Choppy. He had a little corner store as a front and operated his arms business in the back. He buzzed me in as his previous client was exiting. She wasn't his ordinary clientele. She was a blonde in her early 30s with blue eyes. She was wearing a nice blouse, leggings, and was carrying four boxes of donuts. I couldn't help but notice her tucking a few vials into her purse. I happened to know from experience that those vials contained cyanide. Cyanide and donuts made an interesting combination, and that was a lot of donuts. What did she have in mind? I was intrigued, but was willing to leave it at that. That is, until I watched a suspicious-looking man follow behind her. My impression was that she was being stalked. I informed Choppy about everything I needed, told him I'd be back later to pick it up, and hurried out of the store. It didn't take me long to pick up the trail of the attractive woman and her stalker. When the woman stopped into a small diner for breakfast, the man got cozy in the shadows of an alley and watched her eat. He was hidden in the dark well enough that most passerbys wouldn't notice him, but I saw the sick twist as he masturbated while staring at the woman. Disgusting pervert. Apparently his session of self-pleasure wasn't enough to satisfy him as he continued to follow the woman. I've been at my business long enough to read people and it was obvious to me that this scumbag wanted more. He had evil intentions. 
I followed the woman and her stalker to a homeless shelter. That's when it dawned on me. The donuts. The cyanide. Was this woman murdering homeless people? A lot of the monsters in the world are unassuming. They look like everyone else, but they hold a darkness within. A hunger for murder. They have to kill. Believe me, I know. I do it for a living. My hunger is satisfied regularly, but sometimes I stop and ask myself if I would still need to do it if it weren't for my profession. I tell myself no, of course not, but I fear I'm fooling myself. Looking at it from the woman's point of view, it makes sense to prey upon homeless folks. They're easy targets. There would be little if any inquiries. The police won't care, not in a big city like this. They're a good target for someone who has the need to kill. But it's repulsive. These poor folks don't deserve that. I may be a killer, but I still have a conscience. I couldn't live with myself if I let her get away with this. The right thing to do was to put the woman down. I followed the woman and her deviant stalker into the homeless shelter. By the time I got in, the homeless people were chowing down on the donuts. It was too late for me to do anything about that, but I could make sure it never happened again. I snuck down a hallway and found a door that led me into a cluttered kitchen. I could clearly see the woman pouring the vials of cyanide all over the donuts. My hunch was correct. I saw that the pervert had a knife out and was inching up behind the woman. Right again. I could have just let the freak do what he intended, but I wanted to hear the woman confess to her crime before she went down. So I quickly affixed the silencer to the end of my pistol and stepped up behind the stalker. The floor creaked loudly as I stepped up to him, causing him and the woman both to spin around startled. The pervert let out a gasp just before I pulled the trigger and put a bullet in his brain. As the sexual deviant collapsed to the floor, I could see the woman was holding a horrified expression. Yes, I just saved your life. You're welcome. Now I want some answers. It was then that I realized her eyes were fixed on something behind me. What was she looking at that filled her face with such fear? I quickly turned my head around and saw exactly what it was. Holy shit. The Hunger Woman Today was the day. I had done my research and decided that cyanide was the way to go. Finding someone who sold cyanide was easier than I expected. I did a little searching on the deep dark web and had to jump through various hoops, but in no time I had the address I needed to acquire the cyanide. First I bought the donuts. Then I bought the cyanide. My heart was racing. I hadn't slept well the previous night and couldn't bring myself to eat before I left the house. The combination of sleep deprivation and hunger was making me weak, so I stopped at my favorite breakfast restaurant and downed some sausage and an omelet. This gave me the proper energy to do what I needed to do. When I got to the homeless shelter, 
I put out the three boxes of donuts like I always did, but on this day, I brought a fourth box back into the kitchen with me and carefully laced every single donut with a hefty dose of cyanide. I had just finished topping the donuts off when I heard a loud creak behind me indicating that someone else was in the room. I twirled around to see a hefty man in a long black coat. His black hair was greased back in a style that was popular in the 1950s. He was holding a gun on another man who was in between us. The other man had scraggly hair. He was wearing a flannel shirt and holding a scary looking knife. Before I could even ascertain what was happening, the greasy haired man pulled the trigger and dropped the man with the knife to the floor with a thump. The greasy haired man spoke to me but whatever he said didn't register. I was focused on what was behind him. The greasy haired man spun around and yelled out in shock. He pointed his gun at the beast before him and pulled the trigger. The creature let out a shriek that demonstrated both pain and anger as it backhanded the greasy haired man and sent him crashing to the floor. It was the second time I saw it. The hulking, slimy beast. It stood at least eight feet tall. Its bronze, soggy flesh looked as though it were melting. Its eyes were like black pits. I never noticed a nose, but its mouth was prominent. I saw no teeth, just a murky pit of blackness. It stood there like a gigantic, grimy, grotesque, melting wax figure. It grabbed the dead body of the man with the knife, lifted him up and shoved him down its mucus-coated gullet. It then turned its focus to the greasy-haired man. He was next, if I didn't do something. Before the monster could scoop up the greasy-haired man in its slippery paws, I yelled out, Hey! The monstrosity turned and looked at me just as I slid the box of donuts within its reach. It didn't hesitate. It gulped down the tainted donuts and then immediately began to let forth with a series of hacking coughs that sounded like someone gargling a milkshake. Within seconds, the creature fell back through the floor from which it came. I stepped over the mangled hole in the floor and looked down. I could see the beast was now dead and lying within the mucky stream in the sewer below. I watched on as the disgusting monster was washed away through a giant sewer drain with the rest of the excrement from the city. The greasy-haired man rose to his feet looking back and forth between me and the hole in the floor with a combined look of terror and confusion. What the hell just happened? I was going to ask you the same thing. Oh, that guy I shot was about to kill you. I saved your life. I nodded my approval. I guess we're even. The greasy-haired man pulled up a chair, plopped himself down, and spent a couple long minutes catching his breath. I guess you want the story. He nodded. If it's convenient. I pulled up a chair of my own. I knew as preposterous as the story was, he would be the only one to ever believe me. I had been volunteering at the shelter for over a year. The shelter was home to a handful of regulars and a lot of drifters. I thought it was odd that the amount of people showing up in the recent months was decreasing. The nights were getting cold. 
It should have been the opposite. A few of the regulars said there was a phantom coming up from the sewers stealing people. Something huge, horrible, and hungry. Yesterday I was here in the kitchen talking to one of the shelter regulars when the monster burst through the floor. It grabbed the poor homeless woman and swallowed her whole. And then it came after me. I was next. In a panic, I started throwing things at it, but nothing deterred it. That is, until I threw a box of donuts at it. It gobbled them up in a flash and then seemed satisfied and sank back down into the sewer. I went right to the police and made the huge mistake of saying it was a monster. That made them think I was insane. Oh, they came and listened to my unbelievable story. They asked me multiple times if I was on medication or if I had a drinking problem. This infuriated me, which didn't help. They took a report and said they'd look into it, but they also made a point to tell me that homeless people disappear all the time. It was obvious this wasn't going to be high on their priority list. So I took matters into my own hands. The greasy-haired man nodded. Brave. I let out a chuckle and shook my head. Or crazy. We sat quietly for a bit, digesting everything that just happened. After several moments, the greasy-haired man broke the silence. Want to go out to lunch? I had a good breakfast, but all the excitement must have gotten me hungry again. So I nodded. If you like what you're hearing, please consider contributing. Any amount helps. Recurring monthly contributions are best of all. Just go to maniacontheloose.com slash support. That's maniacontheloose.com slash support. Black-Eyed Children The phenomena of the black-eyed children has been reported as early as the 1600s. However, sightings have become more prevalent in the past 30 years. From a distance, they appear as normal children, usually aged anywhere from 6 to 13 years old. They have been encountered individually and in groups. They have the appearance of a normal child with the exception of unusually pale skin. The most distinct characteristic, however, are their eyes. Those who have gotten close enough describe the children as having no pupil, no distinct eye color, and no whites to their eyes. Their eyes appear as solid black. The behavior of the children is often recounted as odd, with some describing them as synthetic or robotic. A common theme is that the black-eyed children turn up on people's porches, knock on their doors, 
and request to be let in. Although experiences with the black-eyed children vary, the one thing all who have come across them hold in common is an overwhelming sense of terror. On Tuesday, May 13th, 2014, multiple encounters with black-eyed children were reported in the small town of Elkton, Kentucky. The following are stories from those who encountered the mysterious chilling black-eyed children on that day. John Wexler, age 21. In 2014, I bought my first drone. I got some stunning bird's-eye footage of the historic courthouse that was built in 1835 and sits in the middle of the old downtown area. But there's a lot more to Elkton than just the historic district. It's a small town surrounded by fields and forest. It became a hobby of mine not to just fly my drone high for bird's-eye views, but to actually drop the drone down into nearby forests and get rare interior forest footage that was off the beaten path and not normally seen by the human eye. It was late in the day on May 13th. The sun was beginning to set behind the trees and the interior of the forest had become blanketed in darkness, so I carefully flew my drone up out of the forest and above the tree line. As I began to fly my drone back to me and away from the forest, I noticed something unusual at the forest's edge. There appeared to be a row of children standing there. They were just standing there inside the forest, a stone's throw away from the lush field in front of it. I counted eight of them. They were all wearing jackets, which I thought odd because it was a very warm day. And they were just standing very still, eyes forward. I kept my drone stationary for over three minutes and those kids did not move a muscle. That is, until I moved the drone in for a closer look. I dropped the drone down to about 20 feet and slowly began moving it toward the front of the children. Then, in unison, all of the children quickly turned their heads and looked directly at the drone. Suddenly, my drone's camera went black. It was fully charged when I started using it that day. There was no reason for it to malfunction, but still the screen went black and it crashed to the ground somewhere near the edge of the forest. It had gotten too dark for me to find the drone that night, so I waited until morning to begin my search for it. I was able to find it relatively easily. It was in the general vicinity of where I suspected it went down, and I was lucky it hadn't been damaged. That was my main worry. When I unloaded the footage from the drone and played the footage of those creepy kids, my blood went cold. I paused the footage on the kids' faces when they all turned and looked at the drone. When I zoomed in for a closer look at them, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Their eyes were black. Martin Augustus, age 53. It was an ordinary Tuesday night as I drove home from work. I worked in a neighboring town and got off work just after dark. 
There was a long stretch of lonely road that I had to drive down just after entering the Elkton town limits. That's when I encountered them. There were two of them, children. They couldn't have been more than ten years old. They were standing on the side of the road staring at my car as I approached, and then one of them stuck their thumb up attempting to hitch a ride. Who were these kids' parents? Hadn't they taught them that hitchhiking, especially at their age, was dangerous? Hadn't they taught them to stay away from strangers and not seek them out? I pulled up next to them and immediately thought it so strange that they were both wearing winter parkas. It had been an unseasonably warm day and even though the sun had gone down it was still quite comfortable out. No jackets were necessary, especially of the heavy variety. Due to the lack of lighting on that secluded road it was difficult to see them well. They were heavily shadowed, but I could see that their skin was pale. After stopping, I rolled down my passenger side window. I wasn't sure if I should have been scolding them or asking them that they needed help. As it turns out, one of the children spoke up before I could. Let. Us. In. The tone of the voice did not match the age of the child. It was a child's voice, no doubt, but there was an underlying hoarseness that sounded like an older child, and there was something off about the delivery of the words. The child paused slightly after each word as opposed to delivering a smooth sentence. Take us home. I would have had no issue with them getting into my car and driving them to their home or to the police station if they needed further assistance but there was something off about them. I found myself overcome by a sense of dread. I was afraid of these children. Then one of them stepped forward and I saw its eyes. I say it because it wasn't a he or a she. It was an it. The eyes of the child were black, solid black. They weren't reflecting light. They just appeared as black pits. Suddenly I felt compelled to open the door and let them into my car even though I knew something horrible would happen if I did. Just as quickly, I broke free of that illogical line of thinking and pounded on the gas. As I drove away, I watched them in my rearview mirror as long as my taillights kept them lit. They were staring back at me and continued to do so until they were enveloped by the darkness. Shirley Beecham, age 41. It was Taco Tuesday at my house. It was my husband and son's favorite dinner night. And wouldn't you believe it, I forgot to buy the shelves. I rushed out to the store, which fortunately was just about five minutes away, grabbed a couple packs of taco shells, paid for them, and started walking toward my car. Being that it was a Tuesday night in a small town, there weren't many other cars in the parking lot, and I didn't see any other people at all except for a little girl. She was standing in the middle of a parking space about three spaces up from where my car was parked. There were no other cars near her. She seemed extremely out of place. I was going to say something to her, but I felt a strange feeling within my body telling me to avoid that little girl at all costs. 
I picked up my pace and kept an eye on the bizarre girl who appeared to be gawking at me. As I fumbled for my keys, the little girl started walking toward me. <laughs> it was just a little girl. This shouldn't have been scary, but believe me, it was. Something was wrong. I, I could sense her poisonous intentions. Her pace was steady and methodical. She was closing the distance between us quickly. She was merely 10 feet away when I finally got my key into my car door and got it unlocked. As I pulled the car door open, I quickly gazed at the oncoming little girl. Her face was pale and she was holding a false smile, as if trying to make me feel at ease, but she failed miserably. As I sat down in the driver's seat, the little girl reached out for me and spoke with a raspy voice. Hold my hand. Just as she was about to touch me, I slammed the door shut and locked it. The little girl held her false, emotionless smile and spoke again, but this time her tone was sharp and demanding. Hold my hand and take me home. That's when I noticed her eyes. They were black, like two pieces of coal. I peeled out of the parking lot and sped home. Megan Garber, age 18. I worked at a convenience store in town. It was 9 o'clock p.m., closing time. I had just gone through my final closing routine. I cashed out the register, put the money in the safe, checked to make sure all the lights were out and doors locked. I was just about to exit the building and head to the car when three kids appeared outside the glass door. I guessed them to be about 11 or 12. The first thing that stuck out to me was they were all wearing coats. It was a pleasant night, so that struck me as weird, but not as weird as their mannerisms. They all stood side by side and extremely still, robotic-like. They had their heads tilted down as if staring at the ground when the one in the middle spoke to me. Can we use your phone? Normally I would have had no problem with granting their wish, but I just had a bad feeling about all this. Somehow I just knew that these kids were bad news, so I declined. This angered them. All three of the kids lifted their heads up at the same time, revealing their blackened eyes. I remember thinking how unnatural it was, but as terrifying as they looked and as frightened as I was, when they stared at me for just a few seconds, I felt an urge to open the door. Finally, I shook that thought out of my head and screamed at the kids to go away. This angered them even more. The kid in the middle pounded on the door. Open the door and let us in. I immediately ran to the phone and called my boss. He was out there in less than five minutes, but by the time he arrived, the kids were gone. Betsy Turner, age 35. At 10.13 p.m. on Tuesday, May 13th, Betsy Turner, a 35-year-old woman from Elkton, was home with her two kids, James, age 8, and Pearl, age 10, when she called 911. The following 
is a recording of the call. 911, what's your emergency? Yes, there are four children outside my front door. They, they keep telling me to let them in. Have they threatened you in any way? No, 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 nothing like that. They're, they're, they're just, they're scary. And, and they keep telling me to open the door and let them in. I have an officer on the way. He should be there in just a few minutes. Can you describe the kids to me? Um, they're about nine or ten years old. I'm sorry, did you say nine or ten? Uh, yes, yes, they're, and they're, they're scary. They're, they're really scary. Uh, I... <laughs> Ma'am, ma'am, what's wrong? They're, they're looking in, they're looking in through my windows. There, there's, there's more than James, Pearl, Pearl, you, you get upstairs right now. Ma'am, tell me what's happening. The, these, these children, they're, they're pounding on the door. They're, they're, they're telling me to let them, they're telling me to let them in. They're, they're looking in through the windows. Oh my, oh, oh my God. Oh my God. They have black eyes. Did you say that their eyes are black? James, Pearl, I told you both to go to your rooms. Ma'am. They're, they're, they're looking at me. Who is looking at you? The, the children, they're, they're looking at us through the window. I have to open the door. No, ma'am, do not open the door until the officer arrives. I'm going to open the door. Ma'am, do not open that door. I'll wait for the officer to arrive. He'll be there any minute. But I have to. I have to open the door and let them in. Do not open that door. James! Pearl! Run! Oh my god! James! Pearl! Run! Ma'am, what's happening? They're in the house. They're in the house. Why did I let them in the house? Ma'am? James! Pearl! No! Don't! No! Ma'am, what's happening? No! They have James and Pearl! No! They, they touch their heads! Oh my god, they've turned their eyes black! Whose who's eyes, ma'am? No, please, stay away from me! Stay away from me! Sheriff Hatch, age 59. I arrived at Betty Turner's house at approximately 10.18 p.m. The house was in slight disarray, but nothing extensive. I found Betsy's body on the floor in her living room. Her wrists were bruised as if someone had been squeezing them. The coroner determined the cause of death to be heart failure. I found no sign of the black-eyed children that Betsy Turner spoke of during the 911 call. Betsy's two children, James and Pearl, were not found in the house and have been missing ever since. We hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com Sign up for our newsletter, and I'll give you some free stuff. We'll see you soon. Very soon. From the mind of a maniac.
Eight horror stories that are interconnected either significantly or slightly and are all bundled into one gigantic collection. That's right, you get eight books for the price of one. Maniac on the Loose, The Nine Lives of Ski Mask, The Craving, The Caretakers, It Lives in the Attic, Goat Sucker, Spirit Stalkers, Hell is Full. All eight books for the price of one. Go to Amazon and search for From the Mind of a Maniac or go to maniacontheloose.com slash books.